Well, thanks, Deacon Jinwei, for reading uh, the passage. Uh, quite a long one, seven chapters, but we kind of reading a few portions of it. And I guess the hardest one is the reading the name of the 12 stones. So thanks, uh, Jinwei, for doing that. I want to thank the music team, too, for leading us in time of singing. Let us come to the Lord in prayer before we begin the sermon today. Dear Lord, we want to thank you for saving us, calling us. And we thank you for bringing us here today, that we can hear your word, we can sing praises unto you. And so, Lord, I pray that you help me as I preach your word, that I preach with clarity and boldness. And for us as hearers, we pray, Lord, that you allow our hearts to be moved by your word and compel our hearts to obedience. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So a very good day to each one of you. I want to welcome you to the ARPC live stream service. So if you just join us today for the very first time, and in the midst of our Exodus series, we are halfway through the second half of Exodus. And we'll be looking at Exodus chapter 25 and to 31 thematically today. So let me begin by sharing with you two stories, the stories of two of our friends from SMBC, Sydney Missionary Bible College. Well, the first family, their first name is Letchers, Matt and Kylie, together with their two girls, went to SMBC so that they can reach out effectively to the people living in the rural areas where there is small or no evangelical presence. After finishing their studies, they went to the Australian outback mining town in the far west of New South Wales, and this place is called Broken Hill. It's at least six hours' drive from Adelaide, if you're familiar with Adelaide, or 13 hours from Sydney. It's in the middle of nowhere. It's a close-needed mining community. So as part of their weakness, they decided to buy a house to show that they are here to stay for the long haul. And beside the house, the kids attended the local neighbourhood school, and Matt and Kylie also joined the local sports club to connect with the people as they began their ministry in a small Bible-believing church. Now, the second family, the Penroses, and after graduating from SMBC, this family of five uprooted and travelled thousands of miles to a remote village in Tajikistan. They are there to be the only Christian family in the city. So they have chosen to dwell among the people to be sought and light for them. They live in the village as a Christian, as the only Christian family, praying that they will be able to point people to the true Messiah, which is our Lord Jesus Christ. See, being the only Christian family in this city has its own challenges, especially for their children. Their children grew up without Christian friends to encourage them in their faith. So these are the two families. So our passage today, Exodus 25, 31, speaks about God dwelling among his people. He dwelt among his people in the tabernacle that Israel would build for him. This is not exactly the first occasion where God dwells among his people. The first fellowship recorded for us can be found in Genesis in the Garden of Eden. So in Genesis 1 and 2, recorded how God created the whole world from nothing. So if you are not familiar with the creation story, you can take some time to read the first 11 chapters of Genesis. But in a nutshell, let me summarize for you. 
God created everything and made Adam and Eve in his own image. And God walked with them, walked with them in the Garden of Eden. And God shared a very intimate relationship with Adam and Eve. And they had an unhindered fellowship between both of them. The unhindered fellowship, sadly, did not last too long. Adam and Eve was deceived by Satan and doubted God's goodness towards them. And what did they do? They disobeyed God's command and therefore they were punished. And in one of the, one of the punishments was recorded for us in Genesis chapter 3, verse 23 and 24. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had taken. And after he drove the man out, he placed the east side of the Garden of Eden, cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the tree the way to the tree of life. So what did God do? God banished them from the Garden of Eden and prevented them from accessing the tree of life. See, even though men rebelled and men chose not to recognize their need for God, God did not give up on humanity. God knows that humanity will spiral downwards in sin without Him. So God has a plan. God has a plan to redeem the relationship God has a plan to restore that fellowship. But it's a long road ahead. Men and women will no longer enjoy the unhindered fellowship with God for a period of time. So part of God's plan, if you are following me in the guidelines, in the, in the, in the outline, is God dwell among Israel in the tabernacle. So part of God's plan was to have Israel build a tabernacle. And we know that the whole biblical story from Genesis to Revelation Thus, we know that this is not the end of God's plan. This is just the beginning. So the book of Exodus can be divided into three very broad sections. Exodus chapter 1 to 11, the rescue from slavery. And Exodus 12 to 24, the new beginning and the establishment of the covenant. And third, Exodus 25 to 40, the building of the tabernacle. So we are in the last section of Exodus. It occupies about one-third of the book. The amount of details recorded for us suggests the importance the tabernacle of, has in God's redemption and rescue plan. So let us read 25, 8, Exodus 25 verse 8 and Exodus 25 verse 22 to understand the purpose of the tabernacle. So at the Exodus 25, 8, then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Verse 22, there above the cover between the two cherubim, and that are over the ark of the testimony, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. The purpose of the tabernacle is twofold. It's a place where God dwells among Israel, but it's also a place where God will speak to them. Christopher Wright, an Old Testament scholar, one of my first Bible college principal, said the tabernacle will be the focal point and the visible and tangible evidence of God dwelling in the midst of his people. See, with Israel on the move, the tabernacle will be the constant for Israel. It will point people to God's constant presence with them. See, most of us will have some experience renovating our place. Well, it starts with ideas, concepts, that will then translate into some form of blueprint or drawing 
for the carpenter or for the contractor to follow. It's all known. Uh, Deacon Jinwei has prayed. ARPC is now in the midst of our planning for our Tenga project. A lot of work, man hours, were put in to build ARPC at Tenga. It's not an easy task. So as Deacon Jinwei has prayed, we must continue to pray for those who are involved, for everyone who is working very hard behind the scenes. But in the context of the tabernacle, Moses do not need to attend long meetings. He just needs to absorb everything that God has told him about the tabernacle. God has laid out his plan and God has his blueprint to build the tabernacle. And God's blueprint begins with the building blocks. Since a tabernacle is a meeting place or meeting point between God and Israel, the building material should be given willingly and from the heart of the people. God wanted them to give a portion of their God-given possession as a commitment to the covenant. So read with me in Exodus 25, verse 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from each man whose hearts prompts him to give. So here, the building material taken care of. God, the chief architect. God, the chief interior designer. Go on to give Moses the exact dimensions, the material needed for each part of the tabernacle. See, there's no free play here. No artistic input from Moses. I like this, I like that, I like this colour. No, nothing of that. God told Moses twice in Exodus chapter 25, verse 9 and verse 40, that he, has, he was to build the tabernacle exactly as God has instructed him. See, when we were getting the Chaplaincy Studio in Kochuan ready to receive students many years back, we bought a few pieces of furniture from IKEA. And those of us who have bought, bought, uh, bought IKEA furniture before, you'll be familiar with the instructions and the tool provided. So as long as you follow the instructions, you will get the final product. So Pastor Adrian and Pastor Kenneth was kind of get, get working and they were setting up two sets of sofa from IKEA. And Pastor Adrian, who does not like to read manuals, laughed at Pastor Kenneth for trying to follow the manual to build the sofa. So they had a competition. And after the sofa was put together, Pastor Adrian had one piece of sofa left in his hands. So I leave it to you, manual or no manual. But for Moses, he has no choice. There is no deviation. Moses was to build the tabernacle to the exact measurement God had in his blueprint. So let's look at the first set of furniture, an important set of furniture that is for the holy place and the most holy place. An ark with an atonement cover, or in some translation, the mercy seat in ESV, a table for the bread, and a lampstand. These three sets of furniture reveal the nature of God. Let's look at the ark. The ark is in the heart of the tabernacle. It's placed in the most holy place. The ark has a atonement cover, a mercy seat on top. Not much details were given in Exodus 25, but Leviticus chapter 16 provides more details. Leviticus chapter 16, verse 15 to 16. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and brings its blood into the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. 
Thus, he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanliness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions or their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanliness. See, the atonement cover is the place where the high priest make atonement for the sin of Israel so that Israel can be of the right standing with God. The next part of the ark the ten words from God will go into the ark. The ten words were God's commandments to Israel and we were introduced to them in Exodus 20. Obedience to God's commandment would set them apart as God's people to live holy life. So all this, all this make up the ark. And this will be the place that God will meet his, his people. And prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 66 Describe the ark as a place where heaven and earth meets. There are two other pieces in the furniture in the holy place. There is the lampstand. You can refer to Exodus 27, 20, 21, or Leviticus 24, verse 1 to 4 for more details. Well, in a nutshell, the lamps on the lampstand was to be kept burning regularly. The light provides the necessary illumination in the pitch black holy places. The holy places was covered by four layers of covering and no lights from the outside could penetrate that area. And the light, the, the light from the lamp served to illumine that whole area. But it also symbolises that God as the giver of light. There's also the table for the bread of the presence and in Leviticus 24, verse 5 to 9, we were told that 12 loaves of bread was baked, and each they shall set in two pounds on the table on the presence, the table for the bread of presence. This symbolizes that God is a provider for the 12 tribes of Israel. Part of that furniture is also the altar of incense, which you can read from Exodus 31 to 10. So in these holy place, places, the high priest would stand in the presence of the Almighty God, very similar to the mountaintop experience of Moses. I want to draw our attention to that one curtain at the entrance of the most holy place. So let's read the description. If you've got a Bible, if you'll be electronically or physically, the, the, the physical Bible, turn with me to Exodus 26, 31 to 34. And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim, skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the crabs and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. This veil has a cherubim woven into it. So do you remember Genesis 3.24 that we read earlier when God banished Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden? God banished them from the east side of the garden and God placed a cherubim with a flaming sword to turn them away from the tree of life. Both the physical cherubim in Genesis 3 and this woven image have one role to play, and they are to stop people from entering places 
that God doesn't want them to attend, to enter. In Genesis, out of His grace and His mercy, God blocked them from returning back to the tree of life so that they will not live in sin forever. And here in the tabernacle, it stopped them from inappropriately entering into the most holy place and dying. See, what the tabernacle let the high priest draw near to God, the tabernacle also acts as a barrier between the people and God. In order for God to dwell among his people and to keep the people safe, the tabernacle is God's way of protecting sinful men, sinful men and women from the wrath of a holy God. We all know the danger of nuclear reactor. And after the 2011 tsunami, we witnessed the danger of a damaged nuclear power plant. See, a number of protective layers were needed to contain the fallout to protect the people from the badly damaged Fukushima nuclear plant. Well, this may not be the best illustration, but I hope it helps us to understand the protective nature of the tabernacle. See, the curtains, the coverings were passive bearers protecting the people from God's holiness. They prevented people from drawing near inappropriately. But God desires to dwell among his people. And God wants his people to draw near to him. So what did he do? So God placed the altar of the burnt offering in the courtyard. Before the priests went near the inner tabernacle, they required to burn all the necessary sacrifices on the altar of the burnt offering. You can read more about it from Exodus 27, 1 to 8, and Leviticus 4, 10. The provision of the sacrifice offerings to atone for their sin is God's way to allow Israel to draw near a holy God. So the curtains, the altar of the burnt offerings, serve as a daily reminder to Israel that they have limited access to God. But yet at the same time, it also assures them that God is always there to protect them and God also will provide a way for them to draw near to Him. Peter Enns provided a very apt insight of the tabernacle, which I'll read for us. The tabernacle, uh, next slide. Yeah, the tabernacle is modelled after a high, higher cosmic reality, the dwelling place of God, the precise measurements of the structure combined with the symbolism of the curtains and the furnishing are not without deep insignificance. The tabernacle seems to represent a, micro, a microcosm of creation itself. The splendor and the beauty of the material used, fine fabrics, precious stones, precious metals and stones, affirms the goodness of the created world. The precise and the perfect dimensions of the tabernacle indicate a sense of order in the midst of chaos. To think of the tabernacle as an act of cosmic recreation is precisely what the building of the tabernacle originally intended to convey. Then he goes on to say, in the midst of the fallen world, in exile from the Garden of Eden, the original heaven on earth, God undertakes another act of creation a building project that is nothing less than a return to pre-fall splendor. The tabernacle, therefore, is laden with redemptive significance. And not just because of the sacrifices and the offerings within its walls, 
but simply because of what it is, a piece of holy ground amid a world that has lost its ways. So if this is a correct understanding of the tabernacle, we begin to see why the writer of Exodus devotes so many space to its description. So I hope this helps us just capture what the tabernacle is all about. So I'll leave Exodus 28 to your own reading. But I want to look at the preparation that Aaron and the priests had to go through as priests in God's tabernacle. Chapter 29 resonated with me more than the rest of the chapters. See, I had to go through my own ordination process before I could be called the minister or the presbytery. The academic requirement wasn't too difficult to meet, but to me, it was a spiritual and mental checklist that I set for myself as I prepared myself for the ordination. One of the questions that I asked myself was about my calling. I needed to be sure that God has led me and called me to be, a, to be in full-time ministry. The other question that I had has to do with what it takes to be a pastor. It's a huge, it's a huge role of responsibility. And I asked myself, do I have what it takes to be a pastor? See, I'm in a, I'll be in a position of influence, and I'll speak into the lives of people, influencing their decision. And that scares me. It's a constant reminder for me to depend on God because apart from Him, I can do nothing. Worse, the danger of being apart from God will risk me leading someone astray. So as I was reading this, I wonder what went through the mind of Aaron and his fellow priests. As they follow God's blueprint to consecrate themselves, what really goes on in their mind? They also face the possibility of losing their lives if they appear before God and fell short of God's holiness. But I want us to look at the individual sacrifice. There are three in all. And then we'll read, we'll read about the assurance that God gave them as they prepare themselves to serve God. Well, the first sacrifice taken from Exodus 29, 10 to 14 is like the sacrificial detox. They were to lay their hands on the head of the bull, and this is an act of transferring their sin to the bull who would die and shed blood on their behalf. The second sacrifice is the burnt offering, chapter 29, 15 to 18. The burnt offering is for the atonement of sins, and it's also a thanksgiving to God for the forgiveness of their sins. The third, the third sacrifice is the peace or the fellowship offering, Exodus 29, 19-34. This is to celebrate the cleansing of their sins. There are two parts to this offering. First, some of the blood of this sacrifice was to be smeared on the right ears, the right thumbs, and the right big toes of Aaron and his son. This symbolizes the cleansing and the dedication of their whole person to the priestly task. Secondly, they partook the offering together as, what, as a joyful celebration of God's forgiving them of their sin in God's presence. The process needed to be ready for God's ministry, God's service is intense, but crucial. I believe the rigorous ritual that God has put the priests through was to bring them to a, even a deeper awareness of their sinfulness. The killing and the sacrifice of the animals are very visual demonstration of the penalty of rebellion. 
and there is death and the shedding of blood. So as Aaron and, and, and the priests go through all this, I believe Exodus 29, 43 to 45, will bring great assurance to Aaron and the priests. Let's read together. 29, 43 to 45. There I will meet with the people of God. Uh, there I will meet with the people of Israel, and they shall be sacrificed by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his son I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell among them, that I am the Lord their God. So what is God saying here? Yes, they, have, they, they go through all the rituals, but it is God who will consecrate them. It is God who will make them right. But ultimately, it is God who has enabled them to draw near to Him. And therefore, God will do all that He can to make sure that the people is able to draw near to Him. Because God knows, right, that none of the sacrifice ultimately can take away the penalty of sin. They are temporal provision that God has instituted so that Aaron and his fellow priests could serve God on behalf of the people. And therefore, Aaron is called to do one thing, and that is to obey. And in their obedience, they show their surrender to God. And I think that was sufficient for God to draw them in and allow them to serve in the tabernacle. Lastly, God ended the blueprint reiterating the importance of Israel to keep the Sabbath rest. So in Exodus 31, 12 to 18, in Hebrew, the command to keep the Sabbath begins with the word ark. So in verse 13, we read, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, ark, you shall keep my Sabbath, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. See, God impressed upon Moses that above all that he has instructed him to do, he must keep the Sabbath. He must get the people of Israel to keep their Sabbath. And failing to do so will lead to death. Why did God impose such severe consequences for those who fail to keep this command? I believe the observing of the Sabbath is a demonstration of Israel's trust and Israel's 100% dependence upon God and His provision. The Israelites are not to depend on their own strength or their own might. When Israel was in the wilderness, God provided their daily needs. Do you remember that? They had to collect enough for the day, no storing up for the next day, because God would provide for them the next day. And Israel need to be able to trust God that this God will keep His promise and will keep providing for them day after day. But those who did not trust God collected more and the extra, we were told, went rotten at the end of the day. And then on Sabbath, God told them, pick double portion pre-Sabbath because on Sabbath, you are not to work it's the day that God instituted rest because God rested on the seventh day after the sixth day of creation. So, but we read that some trust God, some did not, 
And they went out on Sabbath looking for manna, and they found none. And in that portion of Scripture, God told us, or the, the writer of Exodus told us, that God was testing them. So the Sabbath was a sign of Israel complete and total dependence upon God. And it is a very crucial building block of the covenantal relationship that they have with God. And thus, failing to observe the Sabbath is allude to failing to trust God and surrendering to God 100% and equal to the failure to obey God. But we know, we know that the new, in the New Testament, that this Sabbath rest is not the ultimate rest. God has promised the ultimate and better rest, an eternal rest that is made possible through His Son, Jesus. So we have kind of understood and appreciated what the tabernacle is all about. But we cannot look at the tabernacle in the Old Testament and Exodus without looking it through the, through the lens and through the eyes of the New Testament through Christ. So the Gospels and the Epistles reveals to us that Jesus is the fulfillment of that physical tabernacle. And in John chapter 1, verse 14, it reads, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John chapter 1, verse 1, begins with Jesus, the Word. Jesus was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus was there in the beginning with God, and Jesus was God Himself, and Jesus now dwells among us. And the word dwell, you may have picked it up from your own DG studies, is the same meaning as tabernacled. God no longer dwell among His people from a physical building. God now pitched His tent or pitched His tabernacle among us in a very personal way. How personal? God walked now in the midst of men and women created in His image. And men and women now relates to Jesus, to relate to God as fellow human being. And that's amazing, isn't it? From a tabernacle, from a physical building, confined to a space, to now Jesus walking among the people. But let us read further. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11 to 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So what is the Hebrew writer telling us? In verse 11, he highlighted that Jesus appeared through a greater and more perfect tent. Not, definitely not the earthly tabernacle, because that was not perfect, the earthly tabernacle, the altar, the bread, the bread of the table for the bread of presence, the lampstand, the altar of incense, the ark itself, and the tabernacle itself is fulfilled in Jesus, the eternal high priest, in ways beyond our, our imaginations. See, as the death of Jesus on the cross, something happened in the temple. In Matthew 20, 27, verse 51, it says, Behold, 
the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. Which curtain was this? Remember, I, I, pointed, you, I pointed out this curtain to us earlier in the sermon. This curtain that, that separated the most holy place from the holy place. Do you know how thick is this curtain? This curtain is about four inch thick, about 10 centimeter. And this curtain was torn in two when Jesus breathed his last. And what does that tell us? The, 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 the tearing or the, the curtain that has been torn signifies that now we can enter into God's presence unhindered. Jesus ushered in the once and for all atonement that lasts eternally. He paid it all with his own blood and he secured the eternal redemption, the restoration of the relationship that God was out to do when Adam and Eve sinned against him and was banished from the garden. God's plan was always to redeem and to restore. And that happened in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus ushered in the full and unhindered access to God the Father through him. So in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, the opening passage that we read earlier, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Christ, by the new and the living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. Jesus who dwelt among us has made it possible through his death and blood. The curtain with the image of the cherubim woven into it once prevented people who have free access to God is now torn open. In and through Christ, nothing hinders us from praying to God, talking to God, worshipping God, and most importantly, finding rest in His presence. So we indeed stand at a far better position than the Israelites in Exodus. Jesus has paid all so that we can come and worship this awesome God with full confidence. But that's not the end. After Jesus ascended into heaven, God gave us the Holy Spirit, who dwell now what? Now the Holy Spirit dwell in each one of us who confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord. Let me draw attention to two passages. Acts chapter 1 verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18 to 20. Flee from sexual immorality. Everyone, every other sin is a person commit. Every other sin is a person commits is outside the body, but a sexually immoral person sin against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, but you have been brought with a price. So glorify God in your body. These two passages point us to that one key point. See, God walked with Adam and Eve till sin broke that fellowship. And in God's salvation plan to redeem and restore that intimate relationship, He started with a physical tabernacle. But the, ta the physical tabernacle comes with limited access. And in Christ, God removed all that limitation 
and we now have full access to God. And then God put His Holy Spirit in us, in each one of us. And then now we are God's holy temple. We are God's holy temple wherever we are. Doing the same thing. Drawing people to worship this one true God. But it starts with ourselves worshipping God. What a privilege, isn't it? And what a responsibility. So going back to my friends who moved to Broken Hill and to this far-flung village in Tajikistan, they, they are God's temper, proclaiming the goodness to God to those who dwell amongst them. So are we in different parts of Singapore, in different cities in the world. We live in those areas as what? As God's holy temper. And I pray, and I want to challenge you, Say, may God help us to live as His chosen holy people, shining brightly for Jesus. May our thoughts, our speech, and our deeds bear witness to God living in you and me. But we cannot end the sermon of God's dwelling among us without looking forward. We must look forward to the eternal dwelling which we will one day enjoy when we see God face to face. This hope of eternal dwelling keep us going while we live and serve God here as His treasure possession, as His holy nation, and as a people belonging to God. So Revelation chapter 21, verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth has passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things has passed away. What joy, isn't it? And what hope that we have. This eternal dwelling place, this forever rest, this eternal rest, is where God's redemption plan is heading towards. And this is where God's redemption plan will find its completion. And we all stand at this point in history, looking forward to this complete fulfillment. But as we wait, what do we do? Let us proclaim the truth and the joy of this eternal dwelling with God boldly and pray that many more will find true rest in Christ through us. May we be that temper, the tabernacle that draw people to see the marvellous act, the marvellous work that this God is doing in you and through you. So I pray that each day as you pray that God will work in you to refine you, to refine me, and God will work through us to proclaim His salvation to the ends of the world. Let's pray. The Lord, indeed, we thank you 
Thank you for your redemption work, your restoration work. And thank you for Jesus who shed your, his own blood to purchase us, to give us free access to the Holy God. And so, Lord, we pray as we look forward to the ultimate rest, to the eternal fellowship with you, we pray that while we are here on earth, use us as your instrument to proclaim this goodness, this joy, this good news to many. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.